0: you just take a Bibles and turn to John chapter eleven. Let's see Christ clearly presented in this text. It's hard to imagine a increase in the assurances and the comfort we experienced last week in the first sixteen verses of this chapter. Seeing God and his sovereignty over our bitter providences. Directing us to grow in faith, glorifying himself, all dripping with his love. How could it get better than that? But as we keep going in John 11, we see an increase in the assurances. As Jesus draws closer to the tomb of Lazarus, we draw closer to the answer over sin and death and hell. In our text this week, we see particularly the the clear proclamation of Christ, of his essence, his nature, his character that guarantees our final and full victory over death but we see it in the context of raw reality the sorrow of two sisters gripped with their brother in the tomb it is in this context that we see the mercy and the grace of our Savior in A text almost like none other. It's an astounding, astounding text. In 2007, I had the privilege, I would call it, to gather with my family and remember my grandfather. It was no surprise. We had been expecting his passing for a number of months, almost years. He was 87 years old. He had suffered for several years with illness and disease and was ready to go be with Jesus. In fact, I remember standing in my kitchen in Pennsylvania receiving the call from my mom that my grandpa had passed on to glory. And I I did not even cry at that moment. I, I rejoiced in my spirit that his suffering was over and he was with his Savior. Which is why when I got to the funeral and our family was ushered in and the service started and we sang the first hymn, I started bawling. I grieved for the whole service. I hardly was able to gain my composure for the whole time. Just weeping in the pew. I walked away from that experience wondering what was it about that that made that so hard for me? Why was I so overcome with grief when I I knew all the right answers? I knew my grandfather was in the Lord. I knew that Death was gained for him. I knew the resurrection was coming. I I knew that Christ had overcome this reality of my grandfather in a grave. And yet I was still gripped with grief. I'm sure my story is similar to, to yours in some way, shape, or form. You have been gripped with the grief of the loss of a loved one. And have been left wondering, why so hard? Why so long? Why so disturbing to my soul? Well, death, you know, this is death 101, but death is, is the great plague of mankind. It is so final and so thorough, so complete and, and so absolute. This is why that, that diagnosis of disease, particularly the, the life-threatening one, is so scary and disur- disturbing. That's why we hate to hear the word cancer because it can so often and so quickly lead to death. And and death is the end. It's over at that point. It's the reality of death that causes mothers to worry when their children go out driving in their cars. It's the reality of death that, that gives us caution and fear and makes us run to our basement when the tornado sirens go... Okay, not not Kansans, but should make us run to our basement when the tornado sirens go off. It's not the injury or the loss of property that scares us. It's the reality of we or someone we love might die. And this, from our human perspective, is final. That, I think, is what is behind our grief. Aren't we overwhelmed in that moment with sorrow? Because death has has ended that relationship. As best we know it, and as much as we can figure it, it is over. And and we can bring all the religious, spiritual truth to bear on that moment we want to. The reality is it's done. That loved one will never talk to me again. Will never invest in me again. Will never love me again. In our human way of reasoning. Grief grips us because In the death of that loved one, we lose opportunities and experiences that will now never be realized in this life. We weep because this major part of life is now gone and and nothing but a vacuum stays in its place. Beloved, this is the condition of Martha and Mary in John 11. This is the condition, the experience of, of all humans who have said goodbye to one close to them, but this is especially the experience of Martha and Mary. Their world has been shattered and they are here sitting on the pile of ruins, scraping their emotional sores like Job in the book of Job. They had sent an SOS, you remember, to Jesus, saying to him, your your beloved Lazarus has fallen ill, you must come. They didn't actually say you must come, but that was insinuated in the request. But the dreaded outcome had happened anyways. Lazarus had died. And we find out in our text that having died, he had now been in the tomb for four days. Hope is gone at this point. That that maybe they had misdiagnosed him and he had had swooned into some deep sleep that looked like death and was going to crawl out from that cave known as a tomb. It is gone. The dust is starting to settle in Martha and Mary's life. The reality is starting to press upon their consciences and their hearts, and their grief is overwhelming. The shock of his death has given way now to the reality of their grief. This is now the new, true life they must live. But in their grief, Jesus comes to them. Beloved, if for no other reason to listen to this sermon, that is reason enough. In their grief, Jesus comes to them. He sees them from afar and he he comes to the grieving. And he comes giving true hope and real and final and full answers. He proves himself to Martha and to Mary to, to be the fulfillment of all of their hopes that grief would one day be done in this decaying degenerate passing away world where Paul says day by day the outer man is wasting away I had this conversation with my mom last week we were talking about old age and how weird it is that people are surprised by it it's harder to get up the steps now yet like that snuck up on you that's the way it goes your body degenerates in this sin-cursed devil-dominated world that's the reality of the human condition under sin and that's terrible let's be honest it's awful there's a lot of mercy splattered in that reality like the beautiful day yesterday is an act of God's mercy in a sin-cursed world it doesn't have to be that nice The fact that you got out of bed this morning is dripping with mercy. That next breath is an act of God's mercy to you. But in all that mercy, it is tough. This world is hard, causes great grief. And the grief that is the hardest is that which death brings. There is no grief like the grief known in the death of one we love. Before we read the text this morning, let me remind you that Jesus delayed his coming to Bethany for two days because he loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. We saw from the text last week that every stroke of God's bitter providence is directed by God's love for us, and it's determined by God to grow our faith in him, and it's designed to bring glory to God. Those are the three assurances of verses 1 to 16. Now, as we Flip to verse 17, we see the story progress, and Jesus heads to Bethany and heads into the cobra's nest, as it were. Right near all of those who oppose him and are seeking to kill him, but he is determined to give one last undeniable proof that he is the Messiah. In that context, we pick up the story in verse 17 of John 11. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you, Martha, do you, friend, believe this? She said to him, yes, I Lord, I, and that's emphatic in the original, she's making the point, this is mine, I own this. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Beloved, do you see how gentle and loving Jesus is with Martha in the midst of her grief? He has such an important truth to impress upon her heart and he is about to raise her brother back to life and draw him out of the grave. But he doesn't just come and like a bull in a china shop say, listen, stop your crying. It's all about to be over. Everything will be fine. I'm going to make it all right. All right. He comes in lovingly, gently, knowing what she needed him to say and how she needed to be progressed in her faith, and he moves her along like the good shepherd that he is. He sees this hurting lamb, and he mends her leg and helps her walk again. The text starts with a, a time marker in verse 17, and then there's a location marker in verse 18, and then a context marker in Verse 19. Jesus arrives on the scene, Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. That's the time marker, and it helps us know kind of what's going on. The point of saying that is that you must know Lazarus is really and truly dead, and everyone knows it. He hasn't just died. He hasn't just been laid in the tomb. He hasn't even just been there for a day or two. He's been there a full four days. And some commentators say there was a a Jewish tradition within the rabbinical tradition that the spirit of the body would hover around for three days and then on the fourth day when decomposition became really clear, when decay became really obvious then the spirit would depart. That's extra biblical, that's unbiblical but that was maybe part of their tradition. And so God through this work of Christ proves to everybody involved, listen, this guy is D-E-A-D dead. There is no hope of life. We know this Also, from what Martha says in verse 39, as she uh, rejects or objects to what Jesus says to move the stone from the tomb, and she says, no, he will stink. The body will have a horrible odor. No one on the ground in John 11 had any doubt about the state of Lazarus in the tomb. They knew he was dead. Then we're given in 18 a location marker. We're told that Bethany is less than two miles from Jerusalem, and you know that's important because of what happened at the end of chapter 10. the end of chapter 10, Jesus was in Jerusalem teaching that he and the Father were one. And how did they react? How did those who had power and authority react to that statement by Jesus? Well, they picked up stones to bash in his skull. They wanted to kill him on the spot. So he's returning, as it were, to this spot of tremendous danger and horrific tension. He's within two miles of that center of unbelief. Then you combine that with the next verse which is the context marker and you get an even better picture of the tension rising in John 11. John tells us that many of the Jews from Jerusalem had come out to console Martha and Mary when they heard that Lazarus had died. Alfred Edersheim was a, a Jewish scholar from the Anglican tradition and he gives us a lot of help in understanding Jewish culture particularly of the first century. And he tells us that the the mourning ritual of the Jews when something like this. When someone would die, they obviously being in a a hot, arid culture would bury the body as quickly as possible. They would call the community together. They would take the body. They would prepare it for burial, which simply meant anointing it with spices and oil so that it wouldn't stink quite so bad. They would take it then to their family tomb. They would entomb it. And then they would begin the 30-day grieving process. The first seven of those 30 days was... A, a time of community grief. And they would come together as a community for seven days, validating the sorrow of the family. They would gather in their home. They would do all of their meals for them. They would take care of all their housework for them. But more important than that, they would declare the grief that everyone felt at the loss of this loved one. They would even have paid professional mourners who knew what to say and when to say it, who had had formed their craft well to identify with the sorrow of loved ones left behind. Now compare that with what we do today in our society with someone who dies. We, as quickly as possible, have the dead body removed, have no time for any others to gather around us. For the most part, we... We clean up the mourning process through the the mortuary, and they they then present us with a a service, maybe an hour, hour and a half, and then we maybe go to a graveside for 20, 30 minutes, and then it's, it's over. And we've hardly validated the grief of the family as we move on with life. It's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum here in first century Bethany. They grieve together, and they grieve at length as a community. And so John says, many mourners came from Jerusalem. That tells you right there how prominent of a family Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were. It was not just Bethany coming together. It was the elites of Jerusalem coming to the home of Lazarus. They were a well-known and well-respected family. It also lets you know, doesn't it, that Lazarus was dead, right? Why else would mourners be coming from Jerusalem to Bethany if they did not believe he was dead? And the longer they were there mourning with Martha and Mary and Lazarus didn't come out of the tomb, the more confirmed they were that he was dead. And by the fourth day, they all knew he was, fill in the blank, class, dead. Right? There was no question. Everyone understood he was not in his physical body anymore. John sets the context of Jesus' coming by telling you that Mary and Martha were surrounded by human consolation. They had probably what could be termed as the the best mankind could offer in the the face of grief and loss. Their whole community rose up to help them and to walk through this with them. They were all there validating the reality of, of their loss and consoling, seeking to console them. You know the Bible well enough to know that in the church we're called to weep with those who weep in Romans 12. So this is a a biblical thought, that you bear the the grief and the burden of pain and sorrow and loss with one another. It's helpful for us as the body of Christ to to bear that burden. But on the flip side of that, can we just be honest about grief for a minute? Those people who bear that grief with you, don't, don't take it away. They help you walk through it. They help you in that moment. They, they carry you through one minute after another as they point you to Christ, but they don't get you over it. They don't give you an answer for it. Those other consolations are, are helpful, but not final. Enter Jesus. This is what's going on in Martha and Mary's life. They have grief that is a little bit more manageable but is not yet solved. It's a riddle that can't be solved humanly and here comes Jesus to solve it divinely. He brings into the scene a comfort for the morning that goes far beyond sharing the grief. It it goes far deeper than just being a ministry of presence as important and as needed as that is. Jesus brings an immediate and an eternal answer to this grieving family. To show you that more deeply from this text, because I know you know this text well. To show you the the comfort that Jesus alone brings, I want to point you to three assurances in our grief that can only be found in Jesus. In our grief, Jesus will not crush you. Rather, he will convince you and he will challenge you. We see the first one of these assurances in verses 17 to 24 as Jesus meets Martha in her grief and he handles her with divine gentleness. And in reality, we actually see him do that for both Martha and Mary. We didn't keep reading in the text, but we'll find out next week that that's exactly how he handles Mary. He handles her with with divine gentleness, with, with an infinite love and kindness and care. They're both grieving in different ways. Our text tells us that. When, when Martha hears that Jesus is coming, she immediately gets up because she's got something to say. She's got an argument to lodge with her Savior. Not that she's argumentative, I don't mean that. She just, she's got a problem with what's gone down here. And she's wrestling with the truth as it relates to her reality. And so she's compelled when she hears Jesus is in the neighborhood I've got to talk to that man. And she gets up and goes, but Mary stays. Mary sits in the house and continues to grieve. We already know from Luke 10, our first encounter with Mary and Martha, that they're different people. They're sisters, but they're quite unique in their personalities. Don't you remember that? Martha invites Jesus into the home. It's her home, apparently. She's the oldest sister. And she's working feverishly to be a good hostess to Jesus and his disciples and Mary is sitting at the feet of our Lord listening to him teach the truth and you remember Martha her, her, recorded, her first recorded words in Holy Scripture are an objection she's lodging the, the truth at Jesus saying what are you going to do about this make my sister serve there's important things to do here and she's just sitting there what are you going to do about that Jesus responds to her with truth he handles her gently there as well but forthrightly and says, Martha, you're anxious about many things, but one thing is needful. We see that again here in our text, our our first words recorded of Martha are an objection to Jesus. He sees in her a type A type personality. She's an in-charge kind of person. She's a nuts and bolts kind of lady. She's trying to figure all the facts out. She's dealing with the the reality of her new normal. And don't mishear me. I don't think she's being derogatory to Jesus at all. I think this is how she's expressing her faith to Jesus. Wondering what's going on here. Why has this happened? And so she immediately says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died And she couples that then with the truth of verse 22. Whether that's to to soften what she said in verse 21, I don't really know, honestly. But she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I don't know exactly what she's saying to him, but there's a, a glimmer of hope in her mind that Jesus might ask the Father to raise Lazarus from the grave, or maybe it's just a statement of truth to kind of counter the negative of verse 21. Whatever it is, it is this. She is viewing her Lord through her problem. She's viewing her Lord through her problem. And she's wrestling with him in light of her grief. In other words, her faith is distorted and her Lord is diminished because she sees him through the lens of her pain. Frankly, this is pretty normal in grief. Maybe we could say it's normal in all of life, but it's especially normal in grief. The loss of a loved one compels our hearts to wrestle with the deepest of truths, and it's so easy for that to be the lens over which we see all things, including our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to ask questions of Him and make objections to Him that are, are driven and informed by our grief. Our grief. And you need to know, you who are grieving, or you who might soon be grieving, who knows, that Jesus can handle that. It's okay. Asked in faith and and lodged in humility to our Lord, it's it's okay to have a distorted faith that he can then correct. That's what Martha does here, and, and I ask you, what does Jesus do? Does he immediately castigate her and correct her for her distorted faith? Does he chide her for verbally processing her pain? Does he crush her when she's at her breaking point? Does he blast her and say, listen, Martha, I delayed my coming so that I could prove my deity undeniably for all the generations to follow who would read it in Holy Scripture, to make known my glory, and I'm here to solve your problem, so stop your whining and your crying and get over it, and it'll be fine. Of course he doesn't say that. And neither will he do that with you, friend. Neither will he crush you in your grief. The psalmist says our Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. The gospel say Jesus will not break a bruised reed, the easiest to break, nor will he quench a smoking wick. Rather than quenching that smoking wick of Martha, he blows gently on the flicker of her faith. Pressed down by the reality of her sorrow, and he points her to truth she needs to hear. He knows how to handle her grief in a way that doesn't crush her, but encourages her. We'll see this next week, but he does the same thing with Mary. And it looks completely different. Don't think every other Christian should walk the walk of faith just like you do. Should handle grief just like you're prone to handle it. Should handle the problems of life just the way you do. Your Lord is bigger than you. And he has varied colors in the rainbow of his church. He has varied personalities in the body of Christ. And he has patient, gentle love for every one of us. Praise be to him. And he knows exactly what you need and when you need it and how you need it. He is the good shepherd of every sheep. With Martha, he speaks words of carefully chosen truth. That's what she needed. She's a nuts and bolts gal. She needs truth to reason her to greater faith. With Mary, he sees that she's sitting and sulking and despondent in her sorrow, and so he calls for her unto himself, and then he gently listens to her lodge her complaint. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Obviously, they had talked before this meeting with Jesus, right? That's probably what they had been saying for four days between them. Man, if Jesus were here, if only Jesus were here. It's the first thing out of their mouth when they both see him. What does Jesus do with Mary? Does he say the same thing to Mary that he said to Martha? No. Rather, he's overcome in his spirit with the grief he sees in his sister in the faith, in his daughter in the faith, Mary. And he says to her, show me where he is. Take me to where you have laid him. And they come to the tomb. We'll see this all next week, but they come to the tomb and and everyone's crying, everyone's mourning, full of grief, and And what does Jesus do? Listen, it's all right, it's all right. Lazarus, come out. No, he enters into that grief in that moment and knows what Mary needs. Mary needs his sympathy, his compassion, his identification. And he weeps with her. Friend, Jesus will not crush you in your grief, He will move you patiently along. Notice how he does that again with Martha. In verse 23, he says to her, your brother will rise again. Again, predicting what he is about to do. He did that in verse 11 and verse 15 and verse 4 already in chapter 11. Notice that she does not then ask what he means. This is more evidence of her personality type. She's not naturally inquisitive. What do you mean, Lord, that you're about to raise him from the dead? Are you talking about like now or on the last day? No, she responds with what she knows because she's verbally processing. She's dealing with nuts and bolts. She's trying to keep her faith together. Though she knows it's not right, she can't figure it out. Oh, Lord, I I know, I know. He'll, He'll be raised on the last day. I know, I know. Martha knew there was a resurrection coming. The Old Testament had abundantly proclaimed this to be true. Job spoke of it. We read about Daniel made clear it was coming in chapter 12. The Psalms predicted it. The Jews believed it and hoped in it. And let me tell you, friend, all of you will die and all of you will rise from the tomb. This resurrection we see predicted and prophesied and summed up in Jesus Christ our Lord is not just true for those who are Believing, it's true for all who die. All who die will be raised. We came across that already in chapter 5, again in chapter 6, again in chapter 8, now here in chapter 11. Those who die in their sins will be raised to face the righteous judgment of God at the great white throne judgment. That raising will be a, a raising from death to death. Having died in your sins, you will then be cast into an eternity where you will know nothing but the condemnation of your sins. It will be the eternal death of the eternal lake of fire. All will be raised, the unrighteous, to that eternal death. But those who die in Christ, those who have seen in Him their only hope for the forgiveness of their sins and the salvation from their condemnation will be raised to life given glorified bodies that will enable them to enjoy the fullness of joy at the right hand of their Redeemer forevermore. In what John makes clear to us in Revelation 21 and 22 is a a new heaven and a new earth made for us to dwell with God and God with us. So Martha responds in the moment with saying, listen, I know that's coming, Lord. I know on the last day this will all be taken care of. But notice it doesn't solve her grief. She still exists in her sorrow. Jesus not crushing her in this moment of weakness also does not coddle her. He does not leave her in her distorted faith. She, he next convinces her. He convinces her in verses 25 and 26. That's the truth so clearly seen in his statement there. It's what he does with Martha. He, he tailors his response to her specific reaction and her personality Moving her along through her grief to a a truer and realer faith. And his response to her in the conversation is intended to convince her. It's easy for us to parachute into John 11, read verses 25 and 26, pull out that truth for us and go on our merry way and do that. Praise God. There's a lot of truth for you to live on eternally. But see it in context. This is a conversation. Jesus says this to an individual, to a person, for a point. He's moving her further along in her faith. I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I say these things to you because you need to know your Bible. John gives us seven signs in his Gospel and seven I am statements. And they're often coupled together like they are here in John 11 to to show you that Jesus' works are interpreted by Jesus' words. He does not leave you to yourself to figure out what did it mean that he raised Lazarus from the dead. No, he told you before he did it what he meant by it. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. But these statements are, are more than just, I can do these things or I will provide these things for you. So in chapter 6, for instance, after he feeds the 5,000 men with all of their wives and children, up to 15,000 people, with five loaves and two fish provided by a young boy who wasn't planning to feed a whole crowd. Miraculously fed by our Lord, he then is sought by them for more food, and he does not say to them, I will give you the bread of heaven, does he? he says, I am the bread of heaven. That physical miracle is intended, he is saying, to point you to its fuller spiritual reality, which is me, Christ. I am the bread of heaven. He does the same thing here. Before he raises Lazarus from the grave, he lets you know how you should think about it, how you should understand it. He does not say, I can raise you from the grave. I will give you life. He does not say, I will by some sovereign act of Of immutable power declare that death no longer has dominion over you. He does not say that, does he? No, he points to his very nature and essence, who it is that he is, what it means to be Jesus, who he is at the very core of his being. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. You just sang it in all praise to him. Death cannot hold him in the grave. It has no power over him. Why? Because he's more powerful than death? Yeah, but no, because he has life. He is life. He cannot be dead. He cannot stay in the tomb. He is the resurrection and the life. We're treading on holy ground. I know you know we should remove our spiritual shoes and fall before the burning bush of John 11, 25 and 26. For it is here our, our greatest consolation in the face of our greatest sorrow. It is here we find our, our highest assurance for our greatest loss. He makes a two-pronged definition after making that statement, I am the resurrection and the life He explains each aspect of that definition in the next two clauses. So he says, I am the resurrection. Then he he explains it further in verse 25. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So being dead in the grave, he will not stay there. He'll be resurrected. He's explaining that phrase. Speaking obviously of bringing back to life those who die. So if you are in Christ by faith in him, then you cannot be eternally overcome by death. That which seems so final and complete in that moment is but momentary to be swallowed up in Christ. He is the resurrection. He already told us this, by the way, in chapter 5, that extended conversation with the Pharisees when he told them that he is one with the Father and he, he meant to say that I am one with the Father in every way. I have life in myself like the Father has life in myself. He goes on to say in chapter 5 that all will be raised on that last day. He says the the righteous will be raised to life and the unrighteous to judgment and the second death. He's repeating that idea to Martha in chapter 11, but instead of just pointing to a resurrection, he's pointing to himself. In other words, he's clarifying what he has said in chapter 5. He's making it more obvious. There's not just a, a resurrection to hope in, there's a Savior who resurrects you to hope in. It's not a work, it's a person who by his very nature, essence, and power is resurrection. You see, if it's just a work, then maybe it can be overturned. Maybe it could be overcome at some point in, in eternity future. Maybe, maybe something greater than Jesus could come along and, and overcome his resurrection of your body, and then you would die again. That's not what it is. It's in his very nature. You you have resurrection as part of being in Christ because he is resurrection. Death cannot hold those who are in him. He also then is the life. Praise God that in Jesus there is resurrection and life. There's not just resurrection, restoration back to former existence this decaying reality in the sin-cursed world leads to, to death. Thankfully, God does not just resurrect you from the grave to go through it all again. That's what happened to Lazarus. That's what happened to the, the two others who were raised in the Gospels, Jairus' daughter and the widow of Nain's son. On a side note, by the way, there's only three resurrections outside of Christ that are detailed for us in the Gospels. Certainly there were more. Those are the three given to us. And you just think about the scope of those three, the the point being that no matter what stage of death you're in, Christ is the resurrection. So Jairus' daughter had just died. She was still in her room on her bed. She had just passed away. Jesus comes and speaks life and raises her to life again. The widow at Nain's son had, had died and was on his way to the grave not yet put in the grave, but was on the way in the funeral procession, Jesus comes across him and touches the casket and he is raised to life. And then you come to John 11 and Lazarus is in the tomb. He's been there for four days. He is dead beyond dead, if that's possible. He's really dead. You see, every stage of death is answered in Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. giving life full and free to those he resurrects from the grave. He'll make this known through Lazarus in just a few minutes in John 11 when he calls him out from the grave. But he explains it further in verse 26 when he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He is explaining what it means that he is the life. He already said that. Plainly in chapter 5, verse 24, where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Chapter 8, verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's what he means here in John eleven twenty-six: 26, that if you live and believe in him, you will never He's obviously not speaking about mortal, physical death. Because Lazarus lived and believed in Jesus and is right now, when he says this, in the tomb. So he can't be meaning physical death. He's pointing beyond that to a life that never ends. A life that not even the powers of physical death can take away. The raising of Lazarus is going to be the visible witness to these words of Jesus. Jesus. Speaking the sermon in verses 25 and 26, he's going to make it known in verses 40 to 44. He's going to call Lazarus out and make him exhibit A of the truth of 25 and 26. But it's going to point beyond himself to, to the greatest resurrections of all, that of Jesus Christ himself. Beloved, we don't know what Lazarus died of, do we? We don't know what illness captured his life and took it from him, snuffed it out of him. You've been around enough sick people to know it's an awful panoply of things that can destroy you. There's all kinds of evidences in, in the sin cursed world that can come after you and degenerate you and destroy you and ultimately take your life from you. But no matter the, the worst of deaths, the most tragic of deaths, none of them compete with nor compare to Christ himself who is in himself very life, made himself subject to the worst of deaths, the full brunt of Adam's curse, taking upon himself the the weightiness of the condemnation of human sin, dying the most awful of physical deaths, but beyond that, the the crushing payment of the redemption from our sins. There is no death, no matter how terrible or awful, that compares nor competes with the death of Christ. And could that keep him dead? That's his point. I am the resurrection and the life. Not even the worst kind of death. The death to the sins of mankind. Under the condemnation of a righteous father can keep me in the grave. This should give you great hope. Cancer cannot fully and finally destroy you. Tragedy cannot keep you in the grave. Nothing can snuff out life if you are in Christ that will be final and complete. How do these words play out? Well, we read in chapters 20 and 21 and in Acts 1 and in 1 Corinthians 15 and the book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation that Christ rises from the grave and is glorified and is ascended to the right hand of the Father and is soon returning as the resurrected Lord of all. So what will happen to you? That's what he's saying. What's happened to me, I am the resurrection and life is your hope for what will happen to you as well. I remind you that these words are said in context of a conversation with Martha. And they were said to convince her that they were true. Having waited for four days, having, having to wade through the pain of suffering and death and the grief of her brother in the grave, she needed to know and have settled in her heart that Jesus is the resurrection and the life friend this is what jesus does to you in your grief it's important to know this because it makes it purposeful it gives you hope in it that he's he's working through it for your good and his glory he is through the waters of grief helping you wade in to test out the life preserver who is christ in your grief he's he's pushing you off the boat where you have had this life preserver on, thinking, I I know it will rescue me and save me and keep me safe in the waters. And he is, in your grief, convincing you that it is true. Putting you in the waves that crash over your head to see if indeed you come back up and are buoyed by the reality that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You see, you need this settled in your heart so that you believe it as Martha believes it. So that you grieve as Christ leads us to grieve, convinced he is the answer. Lastly, Christ will challenge you in your grief. This is the third assurance. He'll not crush you. He will convince you, and he will challenge you. This is what he does with Martha when he says at the end of verse 26, do you believe this? He's not simply asking her, Do you mentally understand what I said? Do you comprehend the facts and and do you agree with them? No, he, he is going beyond her head and challenging her heart. And he does that in the context of her grief. That don't let that be missed by you. In the context of your sorrow, Martha, what is your hope? As the catechism says, what is our hope in life and death? That's what he's saying to her here. Do you believe this? I know you believed it a month ago before Lazarus was sick. But Martha, right now, when your brother's in the tomb, do you believe this? This challenge is met then by this wonderful confession of faith in verse 27. She pronounces three things that she's convinced are true. She confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of God, and that he is the one who is coming into the world, She, in this one statement, brings together all the, the truth declared throughout the gospel of John so far. So she agrees with Andrew in chapter 1 that he's the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. She agrees with John the Baptist and with Nathaniel in chapter 1 that Jesus is the Son of God. And she agrees with John the Apostle in chapter 1 that he is the one who is coming into the world, the true light who is coming into the world. This is the constant testimony of Jesus throughout John as well, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that he is the one sent from God into the world. Essentially, she is saying in this statement, I believe everything you have said about yourself. I am all in. I don't just mentally understand it. I am trusting it, leaning upon it. It is my only hope in life and death. And it's not just a nice addition to the statement of verse 25. It's the the twin counterpart to what Jesus has said. In other words, what Jesus said in 25 can't be true unless what Martha says in 27 is true. Jesus can't be the resurrection and the life unless he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the one who's coming into the world. So she rounds out the truth of this text with her confession and says, I personally believe this to be true. This is not a generic faith. In a nebulous truth, I believe in Jesus. Yet yeah, one time I professed faith in Jesus. No, this is a, a well-defined faith, a specific faith in a specific Christ. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What Jesus challenges Martha with, I believe he is challenging you with in your sorrow. And in your grief, you say, well, I don't have that yet. Just wait. Friend, just wait. It's a sorrow-filled world. And it's coming your way. That's just the reality. Today, tomorrow, next week, next month, 10 years from now, I don't know. I know it's coming. And when it comes, you have the assurance in your grief that Christ will not crush you. That Christ will convince you in your grief by bringing you to further faith and truth of who he is. And Christ will, in his great kindness, challenge you to grow. Do you believe this? Will you in that moment walk by faith in this glorious Christ? May he help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this text. Thank you for this glorious chapter, so raw and real and so filled with truth and assurance we desperately need. Thank you, Lord. Help us to walk by faith, not just today, but when you knock on our door with that grief and sorrow that will overwhelm us and destroy us if left to ourselves. We trust, Lord, that you will not crush us, that you will mercifully grow us in faith in you. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we respond to God's word, we want to declare, I know who I have believed. Please stand. I know. Only He is able to keep that, which we've committed to Him. If you're visiting with us today, we are glad you've been able to join us. Hopefully we get the opportunity to greet you on your way out. I'll try to be at that center door. I'd love to meet you and get to know who you are, get to know you a little bit better before you leave today. Thank you for joining us. I want to remind our VBS workers that you have a VBS meeting right after the service, so make your way right there. I don't remember what room it's in, but it's in the bulletin. Just follow the crowd if you're not sure. You'll find it and be there with them. Uh, and bless them in that way. Also, there are a need for, I think, some more snacks, maybe some VBS craft items. If you're interested or available in helping them with that, there's a bulletin board outside the office that will point you to what you can bless that that ministry with in the weeks to come. May God's grace be upon you as you go forward in the confidence that Jesus is our resurrection and our life. God's grace to you.